0: Before we start our episode today, we would like to thank our most recent Patreon supporters Jenny Cotting, Cindy, Courtney M., and Nia. Your support means the world to us. Before we start this episode, I would like to apologize on behalf of my
1: co host.
0: (laughs) He is an embarrassment to
1: To his race. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yes. yes, yes you embarrassment to your race.
1: What is this is just the 1820s?
0: <laughs> 1920s? Your embarrassment travels over centuries. <laughs> That's how bad it is.
1: Welcome to another episode of Dive In Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities with our less than ideal selves. I am Delma Jackson.
0: And I'm Shandine Garcia. And today we're excited to be joined by Janine Yazi of the Global Landscape Forum.
1: We're looking forward to having her on the show. But as always, before we do that, we wanted to take a moment to check in with one another. So Shandine, how the hell are you?
0: I'm having a really good week and I'm surprised that I'm that, um, I was going to say that vehement about it, but that's not the word I'm looking for. I'm just surprised that it's that clear to me thinking back about my week. I'm having a good week. My highs and lows are, um, they weren't hard to come up with. My high is that now my entire family is completely vaccinated, except for my eight-year-old niece. But my brothers, my sisters, my children, everybody is vaccinated. Excellent. And they're super scared about it because I can't get vaccinated. So Mm -hmm. they all now can be around me and it's safer for me, which is nice.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: My low is that we live in the Willamette Valley, which is pretty much one of the highest pollen count locations in the world and so from about the second week of may until the first week of july i can't be outside and it's a bummer because that's when the sun comes out and the weather starts to change i also can't have open windows it's terrible for about a good two and a half months
1: dang and there's and nothing now, you could take to mitigate that
0: i take albuterol Qvar. Singular, Claritin, and Patanol, And Flonase.
1: <laughs> you still can't go on. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you. I was just like, You did
0: mean job. to laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> you very much meant to laugh at me. I just think like you think about the valley and all the like the pollen stuck inside between two hills, essentially. It's pretty intense. All the grass seed, you can see it. It's so bad.
1: So you're in a bowl. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it just settles in your bowl.
0: It's terrible.
1: Dusty, terrible. Dusty bowl of pollen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. You're not sorry. You're <laughs> amused by all of this. All right. I'm talk not- to me about your week, paid in the ass.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, so... I'm doing well overall. Um, I'll start with my low per usual. My uh, kids are struggling ever since they switched over to virtual. With them switching to strictly virtual, it means they have no more direct interaction. Everything is just kind of, here are your assignments for the week. Go, you know. Um, They were doing well overall. I took for granted that that would continue, and I was not monitoring them as hard as I would have otherwise. Now I look up, and it's like, oh, shit, they're not doing well. Now we only got a half full of weeks. That's sitting on me right now. I can't speak for any other parent, but I will say for myself, there are definitely times where I could say, I'm really hustling at this parenting thing. And then there are times where I'm like, man, fuck this. Here's some crackers <laughs> in a flashlight.
0: <laughs> what was your high?
1: <laughs> I was able to catch up with some of my homeboys and we go back to high school or undergrad and or undergrad. And um, yeah, it was just a good reminder of what it means to have good friends, lifelong friends, you know um, the quality of the conversations Um, the ease of vulnerability, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. To have that amongst fellas, given the work I've done around some gender shit, I've come to appreciate what I have a little bit better. I understand that for a lot of men that can be challenging to talk about the hard shit. And so to know that I've had this group in my life this long, and that's always been there, Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it was just a, it felt good to be a part of that kind of circle, you know, um, and we're trying to figure out when we might, uh, get together, um, this summer maybe or whatever. And so that felt really good. Um, just been really thankful and clear about being thankful for them. And so I would say that's been, that's been my high right now. Yeah. that's
0: pretty phenomenal yeah it's pretty phenomenal especially just with all the toxic masculinity and it's like i'm trying i'm trying i'm trying i'm trying and then to be around people where you actually don't fall back into those habits because everyone is trying to you know not be
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's a good group of guys to be sure before we cut into the next um section of the podcast we just wanted to name that we've heard from uh several listeners requesting that Shandine and i spend some time talking through some of the most recent events um, both here in the u.s but also internationally as well um the chauvin trial um what's going on in india right now with covid and a few other things so shandina and i just wanted to name that we will take a podcast episode, maybe the last of this season, um, and spend some time just kind of reviewing uh, some of the current events together, as opposed to having a guest like we normally would. So just wanted to name that.
0: And we really appreciate you reaching out to us and asking us for that. We are so blessed and lucky to have our guest with us today, Janine Yazi. She's Dene and is a community activist from the United States and co-founder of S- And CEO of Sixth World Solutions, which works with Diné communities to develop projects, programs, and policies that promote sustainability, environmental justice, and self-governance. She also co-founded the first Navajo Nation community-led watershed planning program for local control in the sustainable management, restoration, and protection of natural resources through youth engagement and community capacity building. Her work has earned international recognition, including serving as the co-convener of the Indigenous Peoples Major Group of the United Nations. And on a personal note, she is kick-ass to talk to and engage with and dream when talking about deep Indigenous-led responses to how we can make this world a place where everybody can be in their fullest humanity. It's been a gift to get to know her, and we're excited she's with us today.
1: Yeah, welcome to the show, Janine. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you both.
1: Both of us, or more? Or so really, me. just
2: me? It's it's cool. Really, just Janine. <laughs> I'm gonna
1: make sure I edit that part out. Um, so, uh, if I might, I wanted to say that I spent some time. Um, perusing some of the work you've been doing, and in doing so, um, came across a um, video interview, um, around why traditional knowledge matters, uh, for the global landscape mm-hmm. forum. Does that sound familiar? Yes, all right, cool. So, <clears throat> given the trajectory of your work, one of the things that I'm always interested in and would love to invite you to speak to is very foundational. Like I'm I'm curious as to how this came to be your work in the first place. What would you say brought you along this particular path or trajectory?
2: Um you know, I think it's just the nature of being Indigenous in a world that is very hostile towards indigeneity and what our cultures, what our peoples, what our languages um, represent and the value that they have for the creation of knowledge. And, you know, being of a generation that... Has sort of like come into the awakening of man-made climate change and also the issues of, of systemic inequality, um, corporate capitalism, and how it fuels uh, economic inequality both here and abroad uh, and all of the the layers of just structured oppression of non-white peoples all over the globe. Um, it became very apparent that we can't address these issues and build solutions that are needed by thinking under the same mindset and frameworks that created them in the first place. And so just by the nature of trying to seek solutions for my communities and moving back home to start my business and just kind of jumping into the midst of all of it and our work around natural resources and water and food security and what all of that means, it just it brought me closer to home in a way of um, bringing me back to what was most important. And that is our, our knowledge systems. And I, 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 you know, often see some Testament testimonies and some records, historical records of when, uh, tribes had different layers of peaceful relations with uh, colonialists and um, particularly around education you know like some of the first universities were structured for and created to educate Native Americans and even in and um, in pe- the, the indigenous people's analysis of those experiences, it was very loving but also very clear that oh, okay, we understand like what you're trying to teach with your sciences, With your politics, with your governance, Um, they make sense to us. Like it's—it's not hard to understand your philosophy or who you are as a people. Thank you for inviting us into these spaces to learn these things. But our children are coming back home not knowing who they are, not knowing how to uh, hunt, not knowing how to grow things, not knowing how to be in community. And so, you know, very lovingly, like for those reasons, so we're—we're deciding that your quantum physics and your (laughs) and your studies are just not for us because it's missing the spirit of what our people need to learn to be whole people, whole beings and in this lifetime. And, you know, like that, a very simple rejection of Western education has just, you know, ignited all of the conflict that we see with them and, and the brutality that began to be embedded in the forced assimilation and education of indigenous peoples to, you know, have us, basically reject our own life ways, reject our own knowledge systems, reject our own languages, or be punished for believing in them um, in order to fully assimilate into that dominant doctrine. And I think that's, that's a state that we find ourselves in today. And that's why restoring traditional knowledge has been so important for a lot of the work that we do.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you. I actually have a quick follow-up for you. Um, speaking of and speaking to that sort of hostility, Right. Both historical and contemporary hostility that you're navigating. As you were speaking, I thought about my own relationship to my own identity and how I, in fact, had to unprogram my own internalized racial oppression. And I'm curious for you. Do you. Do you recall having a sense of pride and connection very young or given the hostility that you articulated? Is that something you had to come into later on? Do you recall being politicized and and able to kind of recognize what was going on at a young age? Do you recall ever having any of kind of that self-hatred that you had to navigate? Like, what was that like for you? Um Coming into your adulthood,
2: mm. very important question, and like even as you're talking, I'm thinking about like just kind of snapshots in time um because I think as because of the nature of the education systems, um you almost can't escape that experience um From a very young age. Uh, You know, like I, I still remember questioning in kindergarten, like why we were learning and being forced to memorize the Pledge of Allegiance and how that we had to start every day in that way. Right. And always wondering, like, where do our people fit in to to what we're what we're saying, like what we're repeating and what we're memorizing. Um, and I think the only reason why I was able to think that way is because I was our schools and the after-school programs were structured to go hand in hand with, you know, indoctrination into Western education, but also indoctrination into Christianity. And, um, like the only after school programs a lot of us had access to were Bible studies and Bible schools. So on, on one hand, we're going to schools and doing the Pledge of Allegiance and whatnot. And on the other hand, um, right after school, we're going and reading these, the, this (laughs) was propaganda (laughs) about God's children. And in there, the only people who are black or brown were were being were shown to us to be like the bad people like the people that you don't want to be like you don't you don't want to be like that you want to mm-hmm. be like the children of god who are all these like blonde haired, blue-eyed white-skinned like characters in this little children's comic book
1: thank you for giving in justice a listen
2: we recognize that
0: your time is the most valuable currency you have
1: If you're digging the pod, there are a couple things you can do to show your support.
0: First, head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds of your time. And every review helps us grow our listenership and broadens the conversations we can have together.
1: The second thing you can do and should do is consider supporting the podcast by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dive underscore in underscore justice.
2: extremely lucky that uh, in that process, um, I didn't internalize a lot of those things, um, but I think the only reason why was because by the time I was in ninth grade, I, I, I was very adamant about leaving the reservation school system. Um, I had that support from my parents um, to look for a boarding school that where I could be like indigenous, yeah. <laughs> like, and and where I could learn things that were important for my community, and uh, we found Native American prep school, which is located in uh, Row New Mexico. And there um, was such an extraordinary experience where they had res kids from all over the U.S. come together for the first time meeting each other, right? Mm-hmm. So for the first time, we're actually seeing, like, other Natives outside of our communities mm-hmm. and really forced to, like, confront how we've internalized these stereotypes of, like, Plains Indians or, like, Lakotas, which is, like, m- mostly what you see on the Westerns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, like, in popular media and, and whatnot. And, like, really getting to know each other but then also being completely immersed in a true learning of our indigenous histories Mm -hmm. and that experience like we would you know these little kids these ninth graders in this room reading college level material because that was the only thing that was available that (laughs) showed what our what our our histories really were um and learning the brutality of what our communities faced uh, and reading firsthand the words of these leaders who are at the forefront of the resistance against colonization and theft of our lands and territories and removals of our peoples. Reading their words and seeing the and feeling the love that they had and the hope that they had for our survival and being able to contextualize our reservation experiences in that, in that frame and understand for the first time that it wasn't our fault. It wasn't our fault our people were poor. It wasn't our fault that there was so much violence in our communities. It wasn't our fault our families were broken. And, like, even now I'm, like, tearing up because, like, we just sit and cry together, like, reading these things. And and for the first time being gifted, uh, an understanding that there's nothing inherently wrong or bad about us, that so much has been taken from our communities, um, and then being reaffirmed in, in that love and that wisdom that our peoples had and that we're always fighting for, that still resonated with us. And and I think crafting a sense of purpose at the time that our, we're, we're at a very important stage of understanding our identity and who we were as as Indigenous peoples.
0: Boom. I have, um, I have a comment, a question, and but first, I just want to open with gratitude. It's it's rare that I can talk to another human being, much less in, 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 and another indigenous human being, who can so clearly, like, remember that moment when it when some other outside force, whether it be people at school or, or a professor or somebody actually acknowledges a thing you knew to be true, but you couldn't find or hear it anywhere else, that that moment is so clear. Um, I, it, it, It's healing to share that moment. It actually creates the space for the, the broken pieces, to actually breathe just a little bit. And so I just offer gratitude so much for that. So i uh, um, really deeply appreciating listening to that. Um, You're navigating of that. I, my follow-up question is, you said twice now, um, talked about reasons of why you came back home. And so my question is back home from where, because the, the prep school is outside of, it's outside of Las Vegas, right? Outside of Santa Fe, not too far, which isn't super far um, from your, from your community. So did, was there a journey that you had in between there that brought you even farther away that made coming, coming home so much more significant?
2: NAPS ended up closing down, um, halfway through my sophomore year. And we were faced with this reality like where we we're all given this taste of freedom and like this sense of family and community and this deep, deep gift of knowledge. And we're just at the beginning of that journey. And then suddenly we're we're being faced with this reality of having to return back to our reservation schools. Luckily, you know, the Google was around. <laughs> and I I really wanted to continue my journey of like learning and meeting with uh, other Indigenous peoples. And I was like, I want to go to Hawaii. Um, so I looked up boarding schools in Hawaii, and I found a school, Hawaii Prep Academy. Um, I think 80% uh, of the student body was white and elite, uh, very upper class families. Um, like the uh, Maybe like 17% um, was Asian elite, Uh, (laughs) so international students. And then there was like 3% of us. Like we were, me and two of my friends that followed me from NAPS, we're the first Native American students that they've had. And uh, yeah, my... We were work program students, so we had to work our way through that experience as well. And this elite prep academy, I would have to clean up the cafeteria in order to pay my way through the school. Um, and so that was like a very strange experience, but very um, something I needed to experience before to prepare me for my next journey which was to go to barnard college in new york um because i wanted to go to columbia but i was also coming into my understanding of like sexism and um particularly because of the the type of racism that i was at, experiencing at hawaii prep um a lot of it was was very sexualized and um And I I was, I just knew it was wrong. Uh, At that time, back at home, one of my best friends was disappeared and her family was trying to find her and everyone was just saying that she ran away, but I knew in my heart she didn't and there was nothing I could do about it, but I was making these connections um, because I did get a chance to work with my mom before I left on domestic violence issues. Um, That was one of my first advocacy issues uh, when I was young. Uh, We just happened to have like college visits from Columbia and Barnard, um, which was something I didn't know happened, right? That never happened on res schools. But (laughs) I went to this meeting with them and applied and the college counselor was just kind of like, well, maybe you could get in because you're you're Native American. You could use that to your advantage, even though I had one of the highest GPAs at that school. Um, And uh, yeah, I got in and my journey there took me to to live in eight years in Manhattan, uh, New York. Um, where I became a mother, where I met my husband um, and then uh, really had this um, realization that what I wanted most for my family was not financial success. I wanted them. I wanted my children to grow up in community. I wanted them to grow up with a stronger sense of identity. Um, especially, you know, reflecting on my own journey uh, and my husband's journey as a first-generation um, Afro-Caribbean man, um, we we knew that it would be very important for us to ha- be able to cultivate a life for our children where they felt connected to place and to peoples, and we were seeing the trajectory. That that all of our contemporaries were on working in wall street, working in Manhattan and just always chasing the the almighty dollar only to retire at, <laughs> at some far off time to go build a farm. And we're like, how about we skip those steps and go home and build a farm and build a homestead and just figure out what we do to support that life and support being in community. And that brought, that's what brought me home.
1: I appreciate you sharing all of that. Where I want to go next has to do with solidarity. There is a shared history. Of both beauty and brutality. Beauty despite brutality, beauty in some ways because of the brutality. Right. And I'm curious when you think about that shared history between our indigenous nations and folks on in the African diaspora, whether they be here in the US or abroad, where do you see both some of the promises, opportunities, and then some of the challenges?
2: I think that uh when I when I got to um Columbia, a group of us started a freedom school. And we got um we got a, a professor to to sponsor us so we could get credit for it. We met on weekends, um, we built our own curriculum and our curriculum was structured around everything that we weren't getting in, in our classes. So we like we talked about colonialism, we talked about ethnic studies, we we looked at the intersection of our different struggles, of the labor movement, of the rights movements, of the human rights movements, of the indigenous rights movements. And that I think really was fundamental for me um, coming using that college experience to learn about our intersectionality. Suddenly we question everything. And we start to do that work of questioning our own internalized biases against each other. Our biggest challenge is doing that internalized work and just deconstructing those ways that we have been conditioned to uphold conditions of white supremacy um, in all of these very subtle, subtle, but also these very overt ways. Um, and we also uh, needing to do more work to build a political analysis that connects those conditions and those systemic oppressions to our economic structure and our economic system. Um, because with the American Indian uh, movement and the Black Panther movement, like one of the biggest points of divide, even though there was definitely beautiful moments where there was a lot of solidarity and a lot of effective work together. But one of the biggest um, points of divide was that there is no common vision for what does our shared liberation look like that is complementary. Um, it, it was very much um, articulated that uh, the Black Panther movement was looking for ultimately like looking for inclusion and equity in an unjust system. And like that was our our thing was like we don't want equity, we don't want inclusion in that system, we want our own and we we want to be who we are as indigenous peoples. And I think that that's still a question that we're grappling with today. Like we need to talk about what does rep- reparations look like for all of our Afro-descendant relatives that are here, for our Asian American relatives that are here and often erased in these, in these conversations, and really reclaim the complex history of solidarity and of conflict that um, are at the root and foundation of our, of our communities and the structures of our communities over time. Um, and then the hope is that when, when I, when we've, when we have done this work and been able to do this work, the beauty And learning about Black and Indigenous solidarity throughout different times of conquests is so phenomenal. But also, there's also stuff to learn about when we stood against each other in conflict, when we had our people's enslaved african descendants when we had um you know uh, the buffalo soldiers uh help with conquests and, and 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 you know um civilizing the west um there's there's things to be learned from that too uh that i think need to be brought to the forefront so that we can heal together and we can define what does our shared movement look like in this time as we face a common threat and as we come into deeper consciousness of all of the ways our oppressions have been woven together to so to support people that aren't from our communities, to support a way of life that further takes us um, from our our earth-based cultures. And I think that uh, in doing that, that's where we can shift the narrative of our own liberation in a way that is going to be vitally important for our children to carry on the fight.
0: Because we want to talk openly with folks about what our lowest selves sometimes look like in this world. (laughs) And so our question to you is, What's your petty? If you had a, if you had someone else describe your superpower, not in this really beautiful, amazing way, but you know some of the real deep human parts of you, what would it be?
2: Um, I'm my superpower would probably be sub- stubbornness. Like I, am, <laughs> my husband says that it's like my way are the highway, and in that can be super petty and in, in all of that. Um, but I'm gonna say. Like we need to have those relationships to those, all those parts of ourselves, because at the end of the day, like the pettiness, the the spitefulness, you know, like, um, those are also parts of ourselves that are trying to, to teach us something. And I think they can, they can still absolutely be an important part of our superpowers. I know my spite and my pettiness has definitely helped me protect myself, um, from, from toxicity, um, and also has forced me in a places where I probably would have been complicit to name and to call out things that are uncomfortable. And healing healing's very ugly, right? Like healing's mm-hmm. not all of roses mm-hmm. and glory. and like Kumbaya, healing is very ugly and very hard. And so I think that, that that's a necessary part of what we need to bring and why we need to hold all of those parts of ourselves, because there's a lot of us walking around with a lot of anger and with a lot of just... I don't rage, mm-hmm. rightfully. You know, and I think that those negative parts of ourselves are often rooted in that. And that's not wrong. I think that, that that rage, that anger is something we need to build relationships to as well, that we need to be honest about and to name and to allow to feel, allow ourselves to feel without that that guilt so that we can better understand how how that can serve us or how, if it can't serve us, how to be aware of it so that we can harness it and name it. And be held to account when, <laughs> when we're just being assholes, you know? Like, yeah, that would be it. I'm an asshole. Like, people like to think that I'm like a really, a really, um, like, very nice, and I, and most times I am like super nice, but yeah, I can be a real asshole. So,
1: <laughs> so and I'm, and I'm glad you named that right um, <laughs> because my co-host is an asshole, um, <laughs> not me never me but you know so i'm curious real quick because this happens every episode we'll ask somebody what their petty is and what they often say it doesn't really seem that petty right like when we when we're stubborn to protect ourselves that's not being petty that's that's protection right like that's a natural response it's a survival based response to to not wanting to reengage trauma right I'm curious about the asshole. Like, <laughs> when you don't get your way, and we're not talking about life-changing shit, right? We're talking about little shit and you don't get your way. What does your asshole look like? How did she show up? <laughs> that sounded weird. What does your asshole look like? Did, <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I meant. What I meant was, what does that petty look like? What, is, what What do you do when it's not a big thing, right? But it's a little thing, but it matters to you in that moment and you're not getting your way. What do you do typically?
2: I I become a toddler. (laughs) (laughs) I become a toddler. Mm -hmm. You know, like I do. I either do like the silent brooding, like protests to let Uh everyone know, like I'm not happy without saying I'm not happy. Uh
1: (laughs) So you weaponize silence. Is that what you mean? Okay. Yep. Silent treatment. Got it.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and, and um I, I look for the very smallest opportunity to be like, that's why you should have listened to me. <laughs> <laughs> Every tiny
1: Because I think welcome. we all have a different range. When you say you you look for that that little thing, um, I know some folks can look for that little thing for maybe an hour, maybe a few minutes. And then you got folks that can hold that thing for weeks, months. Where do you fall on that?
2: Years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stubborn, like that's where the stubbornness comes in line with this I'll I'll wait five years if I have to (laughs) To be like, you see, that time you didn't Uh listen to me Created this habit, and now we're in this situation
0: (laughs) And I have a screenshot of the actual email The time when you should have listened to me
2: I can't remember people's names and faces But I'll definitely recount to you in detail about that time I was wrong So
1: you'll bring the receipts, got it All right, all right um janine i so appreciate you um as a human i appreciate the work you're doing i appreciate you giving us some time here uh to be with us for the show um if folks wanted to learn more about what it is you do they wanted to donate to a cause if they want anything like that is there anything you would like to um share with them to make that easier
2: um, well, I I don't usually use social media for all my selfies uh, <laughs> because it's one of the areas that I like to uphold a lot of the partners that we work with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's one of the easiest ways. Obviously, we have our own websites and we have our own Facebook page for Six World Solutions and, and several of the different collaborations we're a part of. Um, but I think following um, my page is one of the easiest ways to see the full breadth of it. Um, because like Six World is like mostly our local work. Um, but you know, we, we work and collaborate with anyone who mm-hmm. is willing to share the same vision because all, every, like I, you know, in a lot of the things that we shared, everyone has their talents and they're, they're, they're trying to become part of crafting these pathways in different ways so when we find those our squad you know like we we try to hold each other up and so like I I don't like I'm very uncomfortable with asking for donations we we're still trying to navigate how to set that up for ourselves because I do think crowdsourcing is one of the best ways to fund a lot of our projects um but every time money gets brought into a conversation, it kind of shifts dynamics. So that's one of the things we're trying to, to acknowledge. So I, I use all of my platforms to kind of share the breadth of the work that is out there. So it's not just about, you're, you you do not have to help us by working with us directly. Like if you're, if you want to help, like some of these people that we work with or that we stand in solidarity with, you're still helping us in the long term. And so that's one of the best ways I think for people to get involved in just what all the good that's happening out there that we know of um, and that we like to share and uphold and then to have people share themselves what they know to be out there, I think is one of those best ways to do it.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you.
2: And,
0: and thanks for committing to come back because um, I think we would love to dig in more deeply to, I mean, even just a sentence of what you said opens up so many Mm -hmm more beautiful paths to engage and argue and dream and all through um, heal as we move yes. toward visions of being in right relationship with one another.
2: Absolutely. I would love it. This is great. This is one, definitely one of my favorite interviews ever.
0: Dive In Justice is a co-production of the Center for Whole Communities and Shoreline Consulting.
1: The Center for Whole Communities exists to build capacity at the individual, organizational, and community level to deepen awareness, embrace differences, and value relationships, thus making change possible.
0: Shoreline Consulting co-constructs solutions and strategies that align with your goals, and leverages the voices, perspectives, and wisdom of those who stand to benefit.
1: For more information on the Center for Whole Communities, find us at wholecommunities.org.
0: For more information on Shoreline Consulting, visit us on the web at thinkshorelines.com.
1: Dive in Justice theme song created by Nasir Thomas Jackson. Doug Fairenson is our audio engineer. Sarah McCandless is our administrative support. Jennifer Cotting and Soraya Yamada Sapien Help us out with marketing and promotional support. Thank you all so much. Without your continued efforts, this show will not be possible.